there's, there's something special about this series because I love the fact that we are talking about questions that people have. And I love the fact that we are talking through things that different people wrestle with because I do think the act of asking questions is one of the most underrated skills uh, that anybody could, could ever have. If we just learn to ask more questions, things will be better. Now, there's obviously a, a, a great side to this. There's a powerful side to this where you can learn more and you can attain more knowledge. But uh, if you ask the wrong questions in the wrong places, it could take you down this really weird path. And uh, this is what I like to call the conspiracy path. Um, and I have this really bad offshoot of myself, guys. And I'm just gonna be straight honest with you. Uh, conspiracy clay is a uh, problem. Because I know myself, if I watch the wrong five-minute YouTube video, I'm going down a three-hour rabbit hole, right? And uh, I'm not gonna lie, I recently did this. And I uh, was like, let's just talk about some conspiracies real quick. Uh, we're not gonna talk about like ones that could like really, really, really be true because I like church unity and I don't want us to yell at each other in here. Um, so like, obviously you got conspiracies like Bigfoot, you got the Loch Ness Monster, right? Those are, those are big ones, right? Uh, I saw one recently that talked about how Area 51 is not actually a real place. They just use that as a cover and they have some other secret facility and there's a whole men in black operation going on there. Um, I saw one where they said all birds were killed in 1986 and every bird that you see right now is a spying robot. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, I saw one that said uh, big fashion uh, is uh, so enamored with the money that they make off of purse sales that they purposely uh, don't give women good pockets on their pants. Um, now, I don't wear girl pants, so I don't know if that's true, but apparently girls have no pockets, essentially. It's a, there's a problem, right? Um, and my personal favorite w w was this one. Uh, the reason Disney came out with the movie Frozen was so that when you Google Disney Frozen, you would get information about the movie and not websites talking about Walt Disney's body being frozen. Um, if you believe that, I have just one phrase for you. Let it go. <laughs> the reality of this, uh, of all these, really, is if these things are true, they, they really don't affect our lives very much. There's really not that much a difference. But like, there's things that we're talking about in this series that if they are true, they do massively change our life. And today is an especially important one. It's one that I, I love. It's a subject that I love. And what we're talking about today is if the Bible is true, then why don't we trust it? I can think of, of several reasons, several arguments that people would say they don't trust the Bible. Uh, maybe it for someone, it's more of the external argument where they're looking at the Bible from the outside and say, oh, that's, that's great that you think the Bible is true, but that's just a bunch of stories. It's just a big fairy tale. It's a big book. It, it's, it's just a story. Or maybe you, you might be someone who has the more internal argument where you're looking at Scripture and you're saying there's no way what was said here could be what they were saying all the way back then. Like you're just like, there's no way it matches up, there's no way it's accurate, there's no way we can trust those words. 
Or maybe you have more of a personal argument towards it where you look at the Bible and you say, okay, those words, sure, they're great for you, but they just don't apply to my life. And what's happening, whether it's the external, the internal, or the personal argument, what's happening is it's leading to a lack of trust. And what I want to do is I actually want to take those three arguments, because I think the three arguments, the external, the internal, and the personal, are actually arguments that you can make for Scripture uh, being true and why we should trust it. Because I believe the arguments for Scripture uh, show us the authority of Scripture. There's this beautiful thing where if we begin to break down the Bible, it should, it should challenge what we've thought previously and help us to come to a conclusion that those words written in that book change our lives. So what I want to do is I want to walk through those three arguments, the, the external, the internal, and the personal, and, and talk about some reasons that I believe that the Bible is true and why I believe that you should trust it. And the first is the, uh, the external argument. The, the Bible, it isn't just a story. It's history that tells his story. If you look at historical facts, you look at archeological facts, you look at scientific facts, it all points to the evidence of what was said in scripture to be true. And I know right now we're in the process of looking forward in our lives. We're in the process of figuring out what's, the, what's what we believe. We're in the process of wrestling with these things. But I think if we want to look forward, what we actually have to do is we have to look backward. We have to look into history. We have to see what history says about these subjects. So what I want us to do right now, uh, I'm going to nerd out real quick. Like it's, That's just the reality of this. Uh, we're going to get all Indiana Jones on this sucker, and uh, super excited. I literally hold, right, singing right here. Uh, she, uh, she, she has a, a farm, horses, uh, and she has a, a bunch of whips for those horses and stuff. I don't understand, sure, giddy up, like, but, like, I literally was going to, like, bring an Indiana Jones hat and a whip today, but... We couldn't find one. So uh, we're going to go all Indiana Jones. And what we're going to do is we're going to travel the world together. We're going to start in Horry County, South Carolina. Everybody say hi to yourself on Google Earth. And we're going to go all the way to Tell Dan. And that's where we're going to start this archaeological journey. Because in Tell Dan in 2010, uh, they, there, there was a thing found. And it was the House of David inscription. We see it right here. And this inscription is from 9th century BC, and it refers to King David and the David dynasty. And the reason that this is really important is because uh, in the 90s especially, there was this big argument uh, against the authority of Scripture, against Scripture, because there was not a lot of outside of biblical evidence pointing towards the David dynasty, which uh, if you've read Scripture, you know it was a massive, massive family line. Uh, the, the most important family line is that it leads to Jesus. So like there's this big, big wrestling point there. Then all of a sudden, this little inscription pops up in Tell Dan, and uh, it flipped that argument on its head. And because it's from 9th century BC, it's actually the oldest outside of scripture reference to Israel's power. This proves that what was said back then is true. But the, the proof of 
Scriptural evidence doesn't just end there. We could leave Tel Dan and we could decide to go to the city of Arad. And in Arad, we will uh, see in just a moment uh, a thing called the House of God Ostrakhan. And Arad is a, an ancient Judean city. And uh, this little inscription right here is dated from early 6th century BC. It's, it's thought to be one of the earliest references to uh, the temple in Jerusalem outside of biblical accounts. In fact, this is what the inscription said. I wish I could read it off the wall, but I can't read that. Uh, it says, to my Lord Eliashib, may the Lord seek your welfare. And as to the matter which you command me, it is well. He is in the house of Yahweh. Yahweh means God. That was house of Yahweh was otherwise known as the temple. You see, it's interesting because this is just like a little bitty throwaway line. Uh, this is just a little conversation people are having, and there's almost really no val uh, power to it, except for the fact that when we discovered it in archaeological findings, um, it completely changed the, the fact that because it is now the oldest uh, or considered to be one of the earliest references to the uh, temple outside of Scripture references. Once again, proving the Scripture to be true, to be accurate. We could leave there. We could go from the house of God, Ashkan and Arad. We could go to Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were historically one of the biggest archaeological finds in, in history. Uh, inside of a, a series of 11 caves, they, they ended up finding tens of thousands of scroll fragments dating from 3rd century B.C., to AD 68, and it represented an estimated 800 separate works. And inside these works, there were uh, manuscripts or fragments of every book in the Hebrew Bible, uh, otherwise for us kind of known as the, the, the Old Testament, except the book of Esther. And all of these uh, were created nearly 1,000 years earlier than the earliest manuscripts we had at the time. Here's why this is important. The earlier that we can find scripture, the earlier manuscripts that we can find, the more accurately we can look at, okay, this is what was said then, and this is what is said now. And we can match those up and say, okay, what we have is accurate. It is true. We can compare the two uh, manuscripts. I mean, these things, being a thousand years earlier than anything that we had before, these are ancient, okay? So that was a big find. But in 2004, we had another big find, and it was the Pool of Siloam. Now, if you notice here, we are spending a lot of time in the, in the Middle East, uh, a lot of time in this, this area, and I've got something to share with everybody. It's this crazy fact. Jesus wasn't white. But the history of Jesus, this is all, <laughs> all happening in the Middle East. This is all happening in the nation of Israel. I mean, this is a huge, important, historical fact. And in 2004, the Pool of Siloam was discovered. And uh, they discovered it because a sewage pipe uh, exploded. And there's a joke there, but I'm just not going to make it. 
Um, they found coins dated in the B.C. time frame. And for a long time, they couldn't find this pool. And that's a big deal because Jesus was said in the, the Gospels to teach at the Pool of Siloam, but nobody could ever find it. Nobody could discover it. And all of a sudden, they did discover it, and it was here, and it existed. And we see that the words and the actions of Jesus were actual places. They actually occurred. They were real life. It wasn't just some made-up story. There's other things that point to Jesus in this regard as well, like the Caiaphas ossuary in Jerusalem. Uh, the Caiaphas ossuary, it was... It was this little box, and, and inside this box, on the outside, the name Joseph Caiaphas was found, and uh, inside the box, there's the bones of about a 60-year-old man, which allows us to, to, to correlate and understand that inside this box was probably Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest leader who interrogated Jesus uh, before he was crucified. And because we find these, these things, uh, Joseph Caiaphas was mentioned in Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts. And we see that, okay, this really did happen, and Jesus was crucified. And then we find this uh, historical fact, the heel bone of the crucified. And it's really gross looking, all right? Uh, but here's what it, something about it. It says, the heel bone of the crucified man affirms the description of Jesus' crucifixion in Scripture. Furthermore, it counters the objections of critics who have argued that Jesus would have been thrown into a mass grave for criminals rather than have been dignified with a proper burial. They found this in an area with a proper burial, and so it just ties this all together once again, which leads us to the last place we're gonna visit on our journey, which is the garden tomb of Jesus. And if we were to look at this picture, if you look inside of that door frame, I know I was talking to Sally and Gwen and a few other people who were on our uh, Israel trip the, the, this past uh, winter, and they were talking about how they went in there, and it was just amazing to see just this emptiness because it affirmed the fact that Jesus died and he rose from the grave, and that tomb is empty. You know, all of this is it, so important because we see things written about in scripture, we, we, we understand all these different things. We're like, okay, this is that story, this is this story. But all this historical evidence points to the fact that scripture was accurate. And this is really important to me. Like, I don't know if you guys know my background at all, but um, I went to Taylor University and in Indiana, and, and I was a history major. Man, I was only a history major for one semester, but like, <laughs> still important to me. No, it, it, seriously, all this is super important. We're not basing anything off of anything new. We're not basing anything off of anything made up. All these things were accurate, and they occurred. So the external argument that it's just a story, no, it, it's not just a story, it's history that tells us his story. But then we could go on to the internal argument, and the Bible, it's such a fascinating thing, it's 66 books uh, put together, 37 for the Old Testament, or sorry, 30, 39 for the Old Testament, 27 for the New Testament, and it was written over a 1,500 year period of history. 
It's this amazing collection. It's the greatest story ever told. It's got action. It's got love. It's got, it's got drama. It's got everything you could ever look for. And we say, like, okay, but can I trust it? Can I really trust what's in Scripture? Can I trust that what it's saying is accurate? Can I trust that what it's saying actually happened? Can I trust the, the evidence? Can I trust how it was communicated? Well, if you do some textual criticism, if you look at the history of the text, if you look at other texts at the time, ancient literature, we will see that, yes, we can trust it. Here's why. Right here, we'll have several works that we look at to start. To start, we have the works of Plato. The works of Plato, we would all say, okay, Plato, smart guy, good stuff, had a lot of great things to say, great philosopher. His works of Plato were completed in 350 B.C. We have seven original, what they would call original copies of that text. The earliest findings of those is from 895 A.D. Julius Caesar, the Gaelic Wars, they were completed in 50 B.C. We'd all say, yeah, yeah, Julius Caesar, real guy. Oh, yeah, he's definitely writing historically accurate. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. We've got 10 copies. And the earliest that we have found is from 950 A.D. And then we have uh, Tacitus, who's a famous Roman historian, huge for understanding the culture at the time, really, really big for that regard to just look at, and, okay, what's, what's going on in the culture? His was completed in 117 A.D., and we have two copies that we can find of like ancient text. And the earliest for that is 850 AD. Now look at the New Testament. The earliest completed, I mean, it was completed in 95 AD. We have 5,700 copies of what they would call ancient manuscripts. And the earliest copy that we have is 135 AD. Do you see the difference there? Do you see how much textual evidence that we would have to say, yeah, people are agreeing with what was said? I mean, look at the difference even between the, the dates of, of the earliest that we have from, from an accuracy standpoint to when it was completed. I mean, New Testament is about 40 years. Uh, Tacitus is about 700. Uh, Julius Caesar's is about 900. And works of Plato is math. Uh, Said I was a history major. Some number. Uh, but we see it's, it's accurate. But that's great. So you're like, okay, Clay, I understand the, the, the textual accuracy, the, the copies and the manuscripts. That makes sense that, okay, we are accurate in that regard. But how can I really trust who and how it was put together? Well, this is where we have to get into something called the canon. And... Uh, to know how the Bible is put together, it was first put together by Jewish uh, scholars and, and, and rabbis and teachers. And uh, these people created what we call the Old Testament. And then the early Christians put together the New Testament. But here's where it gets really important to, to notice the difference. Well, yes, it might have been them physically putting it together. It was God ultimately putting it together because he was inspiring the people who wrote the scriptures, but also inspiring the people who made the decisions to put those scriptures together. And they had to come through a process. They had to go through a process. They had to have time with God to get to that point. And that's where we get the canon from. Uh, Got Questions, uh, which is a great website if you ever have any questions about anything faith-related, I highly encourage you to check it out. It says this. 
says the first canon was the Muratorian canon, which was compiled in AD 170. The canon included all the New Testament books except Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, and 3 John. In AD 363, the Council of Laodicea uh, stated that only the Old Testament and 26 books of the New Testament, everything except Revelation, were uh, canonical and to be read in the churches. And then in AD 393 and AD 397, the Council of Hippo and Carthage affirmed the same 27 books as authoritative, meaning these are the 27 that we're rolling with. This is the New Testament that we're going to press forward with. And how they got to these conclusions, especially for the New Testament, it was this. They asked four questions. Was the author an apostle or have a close connection with an apostle? Uh, Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? They asked those questions, they talked about it, they debated about it, they spent time with God, and they made the decision that, yes, these are the 27 that we are going to roll with. You might be going, that's great, but you just said four or five different councils. Like, they couldn't even agree. I guess you can make that argument. But here's what I know. These were the early church leaders, and they spent time talking together, they spent time with God, they spent time in prayer, and they came to the conclusion that this is what we need to do. Same thing happens here at The Rock. Our staff or our elders, we'll, we'll all sit down together and we'll talk things through, we'll spend time with God, we'll, we'll go, okay, God, what do you want us to do? What are you calling us to do? And after a time together, as a time through prayer, God inspires us to make the decision. And I think what's really important here is noticing that they made that decision and for 1,900 years, nothing has changed. All these years, nothing has changed. Everything in this world changes. There's things constantly moving, there's things constantly shifting around, but these scriptures have remained the same for all of this time. I mean, baseball has a pitch clock now, right? Like, like everything is moving. We can't agree on anything, but for all this time, it's all been the same. Then there's the argument from the, from the internal side, but Clay, how did we get from there to here? Because surely there were some translation mistakes, surely there were some issues that came up in that regard, and in some ways you're correct. Uh, in other ways, there's different ways to look at it. For example, uh, I watched a video recently of a guy uh, communicating, and he's one of the guys I, I trust most when it comes to scripture, and, and he's just done the study. He's been a professor. He's a preacher. He do, he's got it all. And he said he was talking to one of his scholar friends recently who looked at the very earliest manuscripts of, that he could find just over and over and over again and compared it to what is in scripture today. And he said there is a 99.9% content accuracy uh, when it comes to scriptures from the earliest manuscripts to today. All the errors All the things that are wrong, all the things that are different are all either personal lenses or translation mistakes throughout languages. And I think we gotta be very careful. Don't get personal lenses and translation mistakes through languages confused with content mistakes. Because if you look at the scriptures from the earliest possible time to today, you will go, that is accurate true. 
But I also believe if we begin to look at scriptures and apply them to our life, we will think the same thing, that they are accurate and they are true. So we got three arguments. We got the external, we got the internal, we got the personal. Like I said, I, I could spend all day talking about this. I could talk about archeology. span I could talk about biblical studies. I mean, that was, that was my other major in, in college. But if it doesn't affect us, if we don't apply scriptures to our, our lives, that actually means nothing. It's like my, my love for the NBA. I can know everything there is to know about the NBA. I can know the entire history. I can know all the players. I can know all the plays. I can know all the big moments. But until I have to guard LeBron James, I don't know what it's like to play in the NBA, do I? And until we start to apply scripture to our life, we don't really understand scripture. Telamon of Arcadia, he's a mercenary of fifth century BC. He said, it is one thing to study war and another to live the warrior's life. Very different studying the Bible than living the life that the Bible tells us to live. I would say we all want to live the best life we can have. I know we all want to be the best that we can be. And the best way that we can get better is to be in the word of God. Because when I read and I apply God's word, my life gets better. Romans 15, four, it, it, it says this. Such things were written in scriptures long ago to teach us. The scriptures were written because God wanted to communicate with us. He wanted us to understand who he is and what he has done for us. But he also wanted to teach us how to have a better, more successful life. And I know that's the case because I can look at my own life and the lessons that I have learned from scripture and I can say my life is better because of it. For example, my marriage is better because I know how to serve my wife because of the book of Song of Solomon. My finances are better because I'm not letting my finances control me like it tells me to in Matthew 5. My friendships are stronger because I know that it says in the book of Proverbs that we are stronger together. My life experience is better because I know that the toxicity of sin will ruin my life, so I'm gonna get rid of it at any point that I possibly can like it says in the book of Joshua. My understanding of human experience is better because I can see story after story after story of God doing amazing things in people's lives in the book of Hebrews. My mindset, my thoughts are better because I'm being renewed by the transforming of my mind like it says in the book of Romans. Guys, it, I'm not lying to you. This stuff works. It changes your life. People throughout all of history have understood this. I could read quotes by Isaac Newton, Ronald Reagan, Teddy Roosevelt that talk about how the Bible makes your life better. It changes your life. And I know that because it's changed my life. It changed my life because I believe the Bible is true and I trust it. And as we walk to today, I'm gonna ask you this. If the Bible is true, which I believe it is, then why don't you trust it? What's holding you back? 
What's keeping you from taking that step? Guys, I want you to take that step because hope and encouragement are waiting for you. Look what it says in that second part of that verse that we read just a moment ago. It says, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. You guys wanna know what our hope and encouragement is? Our hope and our encouragement is Jesus because that's what the entire Bible is about. From beginning to end, it is the story of Jesus and how he has completely saved our lives, changed our lives, and given us hope and life for eternity. One scholar, uh, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Ederheim uh, found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. Conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. Think about that. That's insane. All this is pointing to Jesus. And that's why our faith shouldn't be in the Bible. It should be in who the Bible is about. And because it's who it's about, and because we know that's real, and because we know that stuff really occurred, and because we have the evidence to support it, whether it's the external, the internal, the personal, we should say, okay, Jesus, I believe in you, which means I believe in your word. I believe in your scriptures. And your scriptures, it tells the story of me, it tells the story of you, it tells the story of all of us. In Genesis 1, God created a perfect world. It was amazing. We spent time with God, we, we were walking around, everything was happy. And then Genesis 3 happened, and the fall occurred. Everything crumbled all over the place. Sin, pain, hurt, all this bad stuff happened. And all of a sudden, because we sinned, we pushed Jesus away. We pushed God away, and there was nothing that we could do to get back to him. Didn't matter how good you were. Didn't matter how, how much work you put in. Didn't matter how much you went to church. Didn't know how much knowledge you had. Nothing got you back to God. The only way we were going to get back to Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. So Jesus said, okay, I'll do it. And we see in the gospels, Jesus came down from heaven to earth, died on the cross for us after 33 years living perfectly. Three days later, rose from the grave, spent some time here. And then in the end of his story of the gospels, in the beginning of books, the book of Acts, we see him say, okay, guys, you got purpose now. You've got a mission now. You are called to go. Go make disciples. Go to the ends of the earth. Go have purpose. You see, the story of Jesus is an amazing story. And it's a real story. Which means the results are real as well. When we do what scripture says to do, our lives change. So trust it. Trust the word of God and make a decision today to do what it says. So for some of you in here that might be right now in your seat saying, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. For the very first time you're saying, Jesus, I trust you, I believe in you, I follow you because that's what your word says. Others of you, you're, you're gonna wanna go talk to someone. We have people at the Connect Corner that would love to talk to you at either of our Connect Corners. Maybe you wanna take a step of baptism because you see that it talks about baptism in scripture. Or maybe you're gonna take communion 
Or maybe you got this sin habit you've been building up and you've been trying to get rid of, but you've just been like, you know what, I'm good. I don't feel like I, I, I really need to get rid of it. So maybe today you're just going, okay, God, I hear you loud and clear. I know the way I've been living isn't right. I'm gonna get rid of that old life. Maybe you're just gonna sing some songs of praise about how Christ is our firm foundation. Guys, this stuff is real. The Bible is true. So trust it today. Why don't you guys stand with me? I'm gonna pray as we go into a time of response. Jesus, man, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we all latch onto it and we all understand the the story behind it, which is your love for us. We lean into you, we trust you right now in this moment. Amen.